I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. On this edition of the program, Giorgio Cafiero, CEO of Gulf State Analytics, returns to discuss recent news concerning Turkey and northern Syria. There's been recent rumblings that Turkey may well launch a ground operation in Syria. We'll be speaking about that as well as the U.S. response to Turkey at the moment. This is a conversation that is on a really moving target subject, so I've opted to get this one out as quickly as possible. It was recorded earlier today on December 6, 2022, and I hope you'll find it enlightening. So with all that in mind, let's get right to it with Gulf State Analytics, Giorgio Cafiero. Welcome back to Parallax Views, a guest that I always enjoy speaking with. It's been a while since we uh, last spoke. Uh, Giorgio Cafiero of Gulf State Analytics, the CEO of Gulf State Analytics. How are you doing today? Great. It's wonderful to be with you. So, Giorgio, if we could, I wanted to have you on to talk about, I guess, these rumblings uh, with with Turkey, uh, potential, you know, invasion of uh, northeast Syria. I, I know there's drones uh, being thrown about. Uh, what is what has been happening? Uh, I guess the past few days when it comes to Turkey and Syria. Well, for a number of years, Turkey has seen the U.S.-backed YPG, which is a Kurdish group uh, linked to the PKK from Turkey's perspective. It's just simply the 
Syrian front or the Syrian offshoot of the PKK. This group has uh, maintained a significant amount of power in northern Syria. Turkey views the YPG's presence in northern Syria as a major threat to Turkey's national security. And for a number, there have been a number of Turkish uh, military operations against the YPG really going back to 2016. And uh, there are some uh, concerns on the part of officials in Washington that Turkey is going to launch another ground offensive against the YPG. Uh, The context here is quite important. Last month, November 13, there was a terrorist attack in Istanbul, and the Turkish authorities maintain that the YPG or the PKK was behind this deadly attack. And I think the Turkish government is trying to send a message to not only its own citizens, but also to uh, groups throughout the region that Turkey is going to always respond very forcefully when the country comes under attack. You know, we're about six months away from next elections in Turkey. So obviously domestic politics are relevant. I think the leadership in Ankara certainly um, understands that a, a ground offensive against the YPG could probably do quite a bit to whip up some nationalism in the six months leading up to this election. And then uh, a final point I'll make right now is that the issue of the millions of Syrian refugees who have been in Turkey for a number of years is a very sensitive one in the country right now. And the uh, Turkish government is trying to pursue a plan aimed at uh, deporting or um, as the Turkish authorities say, um, moving ahead with um, a plan for Syrian refugees to voluntarily return to Syria. And the presence of the YPG in some of these areas of northern Syria constitutes a major problem from Ankara's perspective. And the Turkish government would like to see these areas cleared out um, with the YPG removed from these areas to build these so-called safe corridors to make it more of a viable plan to have uh, many of these Syrians return uh, to their home country. Uh, so definitely quite a few moving parts in the picture right now. If you could, uh, because I, I feel like, you know, uh, less than a decade ago, we were hearing a lot about Syria. Um, and I think in the past few years in the U.S., we, we don't always hear about Syria as much. For people that... Um, may not be familiar with that region or what's been going on there. Why has there been this sort of, uh, I would say, chaos with regards to uh, Syria since, you know, at least 2011 when the uh, Syrian civil war broke out? Um, What's what's behind sort of the tumult that's been going on in Syria for so many years now? Well, you know, obviously there was this uprising in 2011 against the regime led by Bashar al-Assad. And in the early stages of that conflict, there were some real prospects for an overthrow of the Ba'athist government in Damascus. And the U.S., along with a number of Western and Middle Eastern partners and allies, were supporting uh, some of these rebel factions fighting to topple Assad. A huge game changer occurred in the fall of 2015, however. That was when Russia 
uh, with uh, support on the ground from the Iranians, intensified their direct military intervention in the Syrian conflict. And from that point on, uh, Assad has been able to uh, do quite a bit to consolidate his power. Of course, the Syrian government is not in control of all of Syria, but the regime certainly controls the vast majority of territory there. And so really from 2015 onwards, the U.S. has not really seen uh, the overthrow of Assad's government as a realistic scenario. Add to the mix the rise of ISIS. When that group took over large chunks of Syrian and Iraqi territory in 2015, the U.S. really shifted its focus away from uh, efforts to support rebels fighting the Syrian regime toward fighting the Islamic State. The Islamic State, of course, was fighting both the Syrian government as well as a number of the factions that the United States was supporting in, uh, you know, as part of their efforts to overthrow the Assad government. So I would say that really 2015, excuse me, 2014 onwards, the U.S. foreign policy toward Syria has really shifted away from the situation in Damascus and been much more oriented around fighting ISIS. And the U.S. intervened uh, militarily in the fight against ISIS, leading a coalition against the group. And uh, really, ever since then, the U.S. has maintained uh, a military presence in Syria and this military presence has really been based on U.S. partnership uh, with the YPG, which proved to be uh, a rather disciplined force in the fight against Islamic State. But as I'm sure we're going to be discussing later today, uh, the partnership between the U.S. and the YPG and the extent to which Washington has supported that PKK-linked entity has created so much friction between the United States and its NATO ally, Turkey, creating a very complicated situation in northern Syria that could potentially blow up at some point very soon. So uh, just to give people an idea, the, the YPG and the PKK are both, um, I, mean, I mean, I know the, the YPG is mainly sort of a, a Kurdish militia, right? Um, and the PKK as well um, is Kurdish. So uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about the relationship between uh, the Kurds and Turkey and why this is becoming an issue for the, this relationship the U.S. has with Turkey. Absolutely. So I first of all want to point out that PKK and YPG do not represent all Kurds. There are certainly Kurds in both Turkey and Syria who do not at all support the PKK or the YPG. So often in the Western press, people, uh, when they refer to PKK or YPG, they simply just say the Kurds. So I just want to uh, draw attention to the importance here in making that distinction. Uh, when we talk about the PKK, this is a group with Marxist origins that began a an armed struggle against the Turkish state in the mid-1980s. And uh, the... When you go to Turkey and you talk about a terrorism threat, it's the PKK that comes to everyone's mind first. Uh, there has been a tremendous amount of violence between the Turkish state and the PKK 
for decades. The figure that you always see um, Turkish officials and many Turkish citizens uh, put out there is that since the mid-1980s, the PKK has been responsible for 40,000 Turkish deaths. And we should also note that the United States, along with the European Union, has designated the PKK a terrorist organization. Now, in the 2000s was when the white, the political uh, wing of the YPG was established. This group became very relevant to the situation in Syria in 2012. What happened at that point was Assad's government essentially evacuated some parts of northern Syria and basically handed a number of areas over to the YPG. There are probably three reasons or three possible reasons that can explain why the government chose to do that. One was the Syrian military was heavily focused on uh, the fight against rebel groups in other parts of the country and just didn't have the bandwidth to maintain its presence in these mostly Kurdish parts of Syria. Second, because the Turkish government was supporting the anti-Assad forces, uh, giving this power to the YPG in parts of northern Syria was a way for Assad to spite uh, Erdogan's government and Turkey at large. And then um, also at the same time, um, you know, Assad was thinking that perhaps it was time to sort of reconcile with the Kurds and that if, and by that I really mean the Kurds represented by the YPG and thought that in order to win the conflict, he should maybe settle some of the past problems that his government had with uh, many segments of Syria's Kurdish minority. Now, the YPG has had no love for Assad, but for the most part, the YPG has not really been confrontational against the Syrian government throughout this conflict. The YPG is not um, naive in thinking that they are going to carve out some sort of a micro-Kurdish state in Syria, but it seems really that their end goal is to gain some significant autonomy and be able to enjoy uh, cultural rights and linguistic rights in Syria after the dust settles. Now, from the Turkish perspective, this is all very dangerous because if there is going to be more um, Kurdish power in uh, this part of northern Syria that could link Kurdish enclaves in Iraq, Syria, and Turkey together. So really ever since 2012, the Turkish government has seen an enormous threat posed by the YPG that became much more dangerous from Ankara's perspective after the Obama administration decided to make the U.S.-YPG partnership sort of a pillar of America's strategies for fighting ISIS. And these problems between the U.S. and Turkey have not resolved at all. The U.S. government, which, as I said, recognizes that PKK is a terrorist organization, maintains that the YPG is a different group. In Turkey, that, that argument is completely rejected. They say the difference between PKK and YPG 
is a few letters and a name and the location. They basically say that YPG is the PKK in northern Syria. And so Turkey thinks that the U.S. made a huge mistake in trying to fight one terrorist group, ISIS, by supporting what Ankara sees as another terrorist group, YPG. And these problems continue to fuel uh, some significant friction between Washington and Ankara. Real quick, um, with regards to Islamic State um, and, and groups similar to Islamic State, I've always been confused as to how they figure into all of this in the sense of, I think there's a lot of propaganda with, uh, you know, different groups saying, oh, you know, th this uh, this group is secretly supporting ISIS or this group is secretly supporting. I mean, I've seen people say, oh, Assad it has supported ISIS at, at certain points or, or the Turkish uh, are, are doing that. Uh, so I, how does the Islamic State actually figure into all of this when you cut out all the different um I would say interest saying, oh, th these are the people with ISIS or these um, people have alliances with ISIS. Um, do you understand what I mean by that? Yeah. Well, all of the, the states in the region have really suffered from ISIS terrorism. Uh, you know, ISIS has, you know, attacked Iran, attacked Turkey. Um, their derivatives and their offshoots have uh, carried out attacks in, in some countries in the Gulf, countries in the West, countries all over Africa. They, they've, they've picked a long, long list of countries to, to fight and to terrorize. Um, you know, there's a lot of, as you correctly point out, there are many people who talk about certain countries that allegedly support ISIS. If you talk to uh, Syrians who support their government, they will absolutely say that the United States has been a supporter of ISIS. Many people here in Washington, um, maybe not as, so often officially, but more unofficially, will accuse Turkey of having supported ISIS. Um, many people point to alleged links between the Gulf states and ISIS. Um, I think that Ultimately, some countries have approached ISIS differently and have had different priorities when it comes to fighting ISIS. I think, as I met, well, as I mentioned earlier, Turkey has seen its struggle against the PKK and the YPG as its most important struggle in relation to Syria. And at times that has uh, frustrated the United States, which wanted to see Turkey uh, make the uh, international fight against ISIS a higher priority than Turkey's struggle against YPG. And certainly ISIS uh, over the years has been able to take advantage of many of the tensions between uh, its different enemies. So then I, I guess you were saying that uh, Turkey uh, has an election coming up. That may be a reason for the interest in, in Syria right now. Uh, but what else would you say is behind the the sort of what what is Turkey's modus operandi in Syria? And uh, I, I guess what are the what are Turkey's broader interests uh, regionally? Um, does does Erdogan have a sort of greater game at play in, in regards to geopolitics related to the region? Well, you know, when we went back to the start of the Syrian crisis, there were many people, in, in, including uh, many in the Turkish government, who didn't think. It is a question of if, but when Assad would fall. 
in Turkey was supporting the regime change efforts and backing these groups fighting Assad's government. And what Turkey wanted was for it to be uh, a dominant outside influencer in a post-Assad Syria. Of course, as we mentioned, though, um, in no small part due to Russia and Iran's interventions in Syria, the regime in Damascus uh, was shored up. And um, maybe it's a little oversimplistic to say this, but some would say the Syrian civil war essentially came to an end at that point, or at least the the possibility of Assad being overthrown basically came to an end at that point. And Turkey's attention really focused on uh, its struggle against the YPG, still having not reconciled with Assad and still giving support to rebel groups, including uh, some that maintain control of Idlib in northwestern Syria along the Turkish border, um, but again, you know, Turkey's goals in Syria uh, shifted from regime change to really focusing on what it sees as a very uh, dangerous threat from YPG number of years ago. You're asking, what are Turkey's goals in Syria moving forward? Well, it's a really good question. There uh, is good reason to think that there's going to be some sort of a rapprochement between Damascus and Ankara at some point. Uh, Turkish officials have come out and basically said that this might not happen immediately, but if the Assad government can do a number of things uh, that are suitable to Turkey, that Ankara is very open to starting some sort of a new chapter with the Assad government. Mindful of the fact that there's not really any reason to expect the Syrian government to fall from power, I think Turkey is trying to sort of prepare for a future with Assad in Damascus and to try to conduct a realistic foreign policy vis-a-vis -vis Syria. There's not any love between the Syrian and Turkish governments. If there is some sort of a reconciliation, I think it's going to be gradual. It's not going to feature any photo ops, any ceremonies. We're not going to go back to the days of Erdogan and Assad vacationing together as they did with their families before 2011. But it will be about these two countries simply being pragmatic and um, deciding that it serves their interests to reconcile, even if there's a tremendous amount of resentment between the two of them. So does Turkey have any other interests just beyond Syria, outside of Syria? What do you think their foreign policy interests are uh, beyond just the Syrian borders? Well, Turkey is ambitious when it comes to the Arab region. Uh, Turkey has very deep trade uh, relationships with, with many Arab countries. Um, over the years, when political tensions have heated up between Turkey and some Arab countries, uh, such as uh, Egypt or the United Arab Emirates, there were still vibrant trade relations going on. Uh, there are also deep investment ties as well. And when it comes to sort of these geoeconomic goals uh, in, in the wider Arab world, uh, Turkey's very ambitious. Uh, what we're seeing now and really 2020, 2021 onward is sort of a shift in Turkey's 
foreign policy in the Arab region. After the Arab Spring broke out, even really going back prior to 2011, up until not too long ago, uh, there was a, a push in Ankara's foreign policy to promote a certain brand of Sunni Islamism. This uh, was uh, an agenda based on um, certain principles, certain values, and also an assessment that this would be a popular model in Arab societies. And the thinking back in 2011 was that uh, you were going to see more secular dictatorships lose power. You were going to have political uh, arenas open up in some democratic ways and some Islamist parties, uh, Muslim Brotherhood-linked parties would take power in these countries such as Egypt, Tunisia, and they were thinking this would perhaps happen in a post-Assad Syria, and that Turkey was going to gain a lot of influence in these sort of ideational, religious, and ideological ways. But the Muslim Brotherhood project, I don't want to say it came to a, a complete end, but it, it's failed in many ways. Assad has hung on to power in Syria. The uh, There was the coup in Egypt in 2013 that essentially, uh, at least for now, has, has killed the Muslim Brotherhood in that country. Last year, there was the coup in Tunisia that brought um, an end to Inada's power there. And basically, we've seen the Muslim Brotherhood face all these setbacks. And this is a factor that's prompted Ankara to begin approaching the region in some different ways. Um, when Turkey was conducting a rather Muslim Brotherhood-friendly foreign policy, that created quite a bit of tension between Ankara and some of the Arab states that see the Muslim Brotherhood as a terrorist organization. These include Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates. I think um, it's sort of undeniable that uh, within the last two years or so, uh, there have been some real efforts on Turkey's part and on the part of those Arab countries to uh, reset relations and to reconcile. And as this has happened, Turkey has put pressure on um, Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood figures who were exiled to Turkey after Sisi came to power. We've um, seen Turkey uh, reestablish warm ties with the UAE, with Saudi Arabia, also with Egypt, you know, just last month. Erdogan shook uh, Sisi's hand at the opening of the World Cup in, in Doha. So, you know, one of the things that's really driving this is the fact that Turkey has some serious economic problems. There was, of course, the COVID crisis that did a lot to harm economies all over the Middle East. And rather than pursuing um, a foreign policy that has all these ideological dimensions to it, uh, Turkey has been trying to focus much less on sort of an ideological agenda and much more on opportunities to um, deepen its economic, commercial, trade, business ties with uh, countries in the region, especially the oil and gas rich countries of the Gulf. Uh, one thing that the Turkish government really wants is to attract a lot of foreign investment from the Gulf right now. 
And that's an important factor uh, to keep in mind when we're sort of analyzing some of the reasons why Turkey has uh, made some adjustments to its foreign policy and put a lot of effort into trying to improve its relations with Riyadh and Abu Dhabi. Just a few more brief questions here. I, I know we've uh, mentioned Assad a few times, uh, and it seems like at, at one point, um, you know, the U.S. And, and Turkey thought that, you know, maybe Assad would be on the way out. Um, what do you think has led to the opposite happening? I mean, it seems like Assad has hung on, really. So why is that? Well, you know, I think there's a number of domestic and regional and international factors that help us understand why Assad maintained power. I mean, let, let's be frank. Uh, one of them has to do with the nature of the Syrian regime. Uh, you know, his father took power in 1970. The country has been run like a police state ever since then. The regime was always, always fearing um opposition internally and the situation that erupted in 2011 was a scenario that the state apparatus spent decades preparing for uh, the syrian regime proved very masterful in terms of exploiting divisions among uh, elements within the opposition uh, the government did a lot to convince its friends and allies by that, I mostly am talking about Russia, Iran, and Lebanese Hezbollah. It convinced them, Assad said to them, look, if I fall, all of your interests in Syria and in the region will be set back in some very dangerous ways. You have no choice but to support me in this conflict. And those outside actors did. They um, waged intense military interventions in Syria to fight off the forces fighting Assad. And also, I think we can't ignore the fact that um, the regime uh, did quite a bit to rally support from religious minorities and ethnic minorities in Syria. The um, nature of some of the groups fighting the government scared many of these uh, ethnic and religious minority groups, their view was that if some of these hardline Islamist or jihadist factions would take control in Syria, they'd have no future. Uh, if groups uh, going back a number of years, like Jabhat al-Nusra, were to uh, gain more power in a post-Assad Syria, the view was that the Christians, for example, would, would be slaughtered. So the Assad regime certainly played on many of those fears very effectively. And at the same time, the West was very scared about groups like ISIS. And many people criticize Western governments for looking at the conflict this way. But nonetheless, many Western governments basically said, we don't support Assad. We condemn all his crimes. But if the choice is between ISIS and Assad, we're better off with Assad. Now, many people criticize that thinking and say that you know, there's other options for Syria besides the Assad dictatorship or ISIS. But nonetheless, as I said, many Western policymakers viewed it that way and they perceived a choice between one or the other. And there was a lot that Assad did to uh, to push Western policymakers toward that assessment. 
And, and very cynically, I think we can say it worked very successfully for the Syrian regime. So in regards to what's happening now, I mean, are we still in a situation where we could be seeing an, an imminent ground invasion? And um, why is maybe the U.S. not as focused on this? I guess is a lot of that just to do with the U.S. being focused on Ukraine and I guess, you know, more broadly, I guess, uh, China in the long run. Uh, there's been this whole Asia pivot. Do you think that's playing into why the U.S. may not really stand in Turkey's way? That's a great question. And yeah, just to get to the last point you made, uh, you know, these U.S. officials are coming out saying that they are totally opposed to Turkey uh, waging such a ground uh, operation, a ground offensive. U.S. has made it clear to Ankara that they don't want this to happen. But when push comes to shove, I don't think either the U.S. or Russia would try to use uh, the leverage that either Washington or Moscow has on Ankara to prevent Turkey from carrying out such a ground operation. This brings us to the situation in Ukraine, which I'm very glad you raised. Since February 24, uh, U.S. foreign policy has been very focused on the situation vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Russian-Ukrainian war. And the this has, you know, shifted some attention away from, from Syria and other parts of the Middle East toward Eastern Europe and the conflict in Ukraine. And we need to also uh, take stock of the fact that Turkey has played an important role in the conflict in Ukraine. Uh, early on, Turkish drones that um, Ankara gave to Ukraine were an important part of the conflict. They helped the Ukrainians repel the Russian invaders. And in the process, this led to the U.S. and some other NATO members, uh, you know, beginning to view Turkey a little differently. Prior to the Ukraine conflict, there was a lot of tension between the uh, U.S. and Turkey um, among certain segments of elites in Washington, and most notably neoconservatives. There was all this talk about trying to kick Turkey out of NATO. Well, when the Ukraine crisis erupted, uh, all of that chatter came to an end. The um, role that Turkey played in the Ukraine conflict, at least very early on, uh, was a reminder to Western governments that as the second largest military power within the NATO alliance, and as the power sitting on NATO's eastern flank, Turkey is just simply too important to the transatlantic alliance to consider kicking Turkey out of NATO or to consider downgrading relations with Turkey. So Ankara, I think, took advantage of the situation in Ukraine because it was a golden opportunity for Turkey to demonstrate its value to its traditional Western allies. At the same time, Turkey has been somewhat of a diplomatic bridge between the Russian and Ukrainian governments. Uh, there have only been two successful uh, deals brokered between Moscow and Kiev since February 24. Uh, unfortunately, neither of them ended the conflict, but there was the grain deal, which was very important uh, from the standpoint of food security interests across a whole host of countries. Then there was also um, 
a deal that Turkey and Saudi Arabia helped broker to exchange prisoners of war. And keep in mind, some of those uh, prisoners of war who were fighting on the Ukrainian side and detained in Russia were actually U.S. British uh, citizens. So Turkey has been playing an important role in the Ukraine conflict. And within this context, I don't think Washington wants to aggravate Ankara too much. Sure, there's the there's the words, there's the rhetoric, and the U.S. is coming out and saying that it's very serious uh, when it tells Ankara that it doesn't want a new ground offensive to take place in northern Syria. But as I said, though, the importance of Turkey in relation to the situation in Ukraine leaves me to think that if Turkey does carry out some sort of a ground operation in Syria, the United States is probably not going to push back too much. Closing out, the last two questions I had for you were, um, we've talked a lot about Turkish interests here and, and where they um, you know, see uh, the YPG and, and PKK as, as uh, a threat to them. Uh, wh- what about the other side of the equation? Um, like who... who who stands to lose from uh, the the Turkish um, sort of ground offensive if it happens? And, and what are the concerns that Erdogan's opponents have right now? Well, here in Washington, um, probably the number one concern about a Turkish ground operation in northern Syria is that it could do a lot to undermine the ability of the U.S. and its Syrian partners chiefly the YPG, to carry out operations against Islamic State. The concern here in Washington is that ISIS could be a big beneficiary of such a Turkish military campaign in in uh, the north of Syria. I have to assume that throughout Western Europe, those concerns are shared uh, very much. And also the Syrian government definitely... Um, does not want to see Turkey carry out such a ground uh, operation. The uh, view from Damascus is that Turkey's military interventions in Syria have been a complete violation of Syria's sovereign rights. And also Russia has its own interests in Syria too. And the view from Moscow is that it would uh, be uh, very problematic from the standpoint of Russian interests if the Turks were to carry out such a campaign. So um, you have a whole host of governments uh, that don't agree on much, but they seem to agree on this point that Turkey should not carry out such a ground offensive. But a point I'll make, though, is that for Turkey, uh, it's always important, especially these days, it's always important for Turkey to assert its independence. And the line from uh, the Turkish leadership is that YPG slash PKK represent an enormous threat to Turkey's national security. And Turkey doesn't need to get a permission slip signed from any foreign government before it takes action to fight PKK or YPG. Suffice to say, I don't think the fact that the US, Russia, and some other governments don't want Turkey to make this move is going to necessarily prevent Ankara from doing so. And as I said, the the situation in Ukraine does give Turkey this new leverage that uh, Ankara will be very keen to take advantage of. 
So with, with regards to um, Turkey and how it looks at uh, the YPG and the PKK, um, how much of their concerns are, you know, are, is there any of those concerns or are those some of those concerns overblown? How much of it is legitimate? Sure. Well, throughout Turkish society, there's largely a, a consensus that the PKK is an extremely dangerous uh, organization. And I mean, the ruling party, the AKP, views the PKK this way. Uh, secular opposition has this assessment. Other political parties in Turkey do as well. And the view from Ankara is that it's absolutely unacceptable for a PKK-linked group to set up sort of a, a micro-state or a proto-state along Turkey's borders. I do think um, an important concern that uh, Turkey has is that uh, if the YPG could consolidate power in northern Syria for the long term, it would provide PKK militants in Turkey with some strategic depth that could empower those. Uh, they could empower the PKK um, at a future point if uh, the you know insurgency against the Turkish state would really pick up again, as it has over the decades. Concerns that it would embolden uh, certain Kurdish groups that might have separatist ambitions, not only inside uh, Turkey, but also in other countries with Kurdish populations. So, I mean, from the Turkish uh, perspective, the, the YPG poses an enormous threat, not only to Turkey's own security, but even to the territorial integrity of Turkey. And at the same time, um, you know, in Iran, Iraq, too, you have governments that also don't want to see uh, a Kurdish state ever be established in this region. So there's certainly some shared interests on the part of some others in the region in preventing uh, either a, a real or sort of a de facto Kurdish state from uh, coming into existence. Do you think that, that part of the issue is how we talk about, you, you said earlier that when people say the Kurds here in the U.S., they're really talking about YPG or PKK. Do you think there's a problem with how we talk about, you know, Kurdish interests? Because it, it sounds like we treat it as monolith at times. Yeah, I think there's a lack of nuance when we talk about Kurdish issues in the U.S. Granted, Kurdish issues are extremely complicated, and it takes a lot of time to sort of sort out who the different Kurdish groups are and their relationships with each other and their relationships with all the regional governments. But nonetheless, I mean, the important point to make right here in this conversation is that YPG and PKK represent some of the Kurds in Turkey and Syria, but they definitely do not represent all of them. And they, um, and I think we here in the West um, make a mistake when we you know, there are journalists who say things like, oh, Turkey is trying to wipe out the Kurds. Well, I mean, there are millions of Kurds in Turkey who support their government. Um, Just so real quick, are, are, there, are there like, I mean, I'm assuming even in Turkey, there, there may be, um, you know, uh, people that, that lean towards a, a really far right view where they, they like, um, they conflate all Kurds. Like, I'm sure there's anti-Kurdish bigotries that maybe exist there, but you're, you're saying that it's it's 
you know, it's more complicated than that. There's different factions that have different views, both in the U.S. and in Turkey and in 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 uh, the Kurdish amongst the Kurds. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the Kurds are not a monolithic group. There's a lot of tension between different different Kurdish groups. Uh, you know, you have some Kurdish groups that are very secular. There are also some Kurdish factions in the region that are Islamist. Some of these Kurdish groups are supportive of Turkey. Some are opposed to Turkey. Uh, some of these uh, Kurds have been supportive of the Assad regime. Some have been staunchly opposed to the Assad regime. You know, all to say, I mean, the Kurds are definitely not all on the same page. I mean, there's tens of millions of Kurds in, in the world. And when we just simply say, oh, the Kurds are doing this, or Turkey's doing this to the Kurds, it, it's an extreme oversimplification. I guess what I was asking, does that, do you think mm -hmm. that that oversimplification exists outside of just Western, um, Western uh, states? Like do, do I, I'm assuming there are people in Turkey that may have oversimplifications as well, or am I getting that wrong? I think the oversimplification is going on really in the U.S. and in other Western countries. I, I think in Turkey, people don't oversimplify the issues as much. Uh, you, you do rightly point out that there is a history of uh, anti-Kurdish bigotry in Turkey. But we should definitely keep in mind, though, that the situation with the Kurds in Turkey did change after Erdogan came to power. Before Erdogan came to power, there was uh, de decades-old history of the uh, military closely uh, adhering to Kemalist ideology, doing quite a bit to suppress Kurdish identity. And when Erdogan came to power, he said to many of the Kurds in Turkey, he said, look, I um, have a background and I've suffered under this military, uh, the, the military order. You as Kurds have suffered too. Please work with me. I'm trying to create an opening in Turkey. And after the AKP came to power in 2002, there were openings. Uh, you talk about uh, cultural rights, linguistic rights, the um, rights of Kurds to have media outlets in Kurdish. A lot of that opened up after the AKP came to power and civilians took the reign with the military really going back to the barracks and leaving politics, not denying that there are still issues today, but... Um, you know, while many people in the West portray Erdogan as a leader who's hostile to the Kurds, I, again, I want to emphasize that his government is being very aggressive against the PKK and YPG. But as, as you do uh, raise this important question, we should point out, though, that, you know, um, inside Turkey, it's, it's very different uh, in terms of sort of the Kurdish landscape. And there are definitely, um, you know, segments of the Kurdish minority that have been supportive of Erdogan over the years. In closing, uh, I, I don't want to do too much soothsaying here, but where do you see uh, things potentially headed um, over the next few weeks and months uh, with regards to Turkey and Syria? Well, it's it's obviously difficult to predict. I would not be surprised if there is a Turkish operation against the PKK slash YPG. Um, you know, this 
is something Turkey has done a number of times since 2016. So I would certainly not be shocked if this is what comes. I have no doubt, though, that officials in the Biden administration are probably going to be trying to work behind closed doors with uh, Turkey, keep uh, channels of communication open and to try to convince Turkey to deal with these security issues in some different ways. But, you know, Turkey asserts itself uh, with a very independent foreign policy. Uh, Turkey definitely doesn't wait around for the U.S. to give it permission. Turkey has no problem taking actions that the U.S. strongly disagrees with. Um, So I would not be too surprised if Turkey does carry out such a campaign. That being said, though, the U.S. does have some leverage over Turkey, and the U.S. um, could, I'm not saying they necessarily would, but the U.S. does have some options for putting pressure on Turkey And it'll be interesting to see uh, what the Biden administration might do to try to disincentivize Ankara from waging such a ground operation in northern Syria. But again, I want to caveat that with a point I made before. The Biden administration's focus is much, much more on Ukraine than Syria. And the Biden administration views Turkey as an extremely important NATO ally vis-a-vis the conflict in Ukraine. So I would uh, not expect the Biden administration to push back against Turkey too much. What in closing here, uh, just because I I just thought of it, what what are the um, what are the risks uh, for Turkey if if they do do um, a ground invasion? I mean, could could this blow back on Turkey in, in different ways? Well, yes. I mean, the U.S. does have some options. And again, I emphasize I'm not convinced the U.S. would exercise any of these options for the reasons I laid out before. But there are a number of things the U.S. can do uh, when it comes to um, the tensions between Greece and Turkey. You could see some more American support for Greece. Uh, You could also, I mean, the U.S. in recent years has imposed sanctions on Turkey. That's something that could theoretically happen again uh, when you're talking about fighter jets. Um, the U.S. can also uh, withhold on certain military transactions. So there are some ways the U.S. could make Turkey pay a price for deciding to launch some sort of an upper ground offensive into Syria. I, I guess that what I'm asking is, it, would, is it possible the ground offensive would um, backfire in the sense of I mean, could a ground offensive go badly, just just the offensive itself for Turkey, um, or is it likely that it would go well? Well, obviously, it's much easier to start these kinds of uh, operations than it is to end them. And there certainly is always the risk that amid the fog of war, things don't go as planned. Um, And naturally, the situation is always unpredictable. I think the, the nightmarish scenario for Turkey would be that there's somewhat of a quagmire it could get into. That being said, when we look at the past uh, military operations that Turkey's waged uh, going back to 2016 and then uh, another one in 2018, followed by another one in 2019, uh, that's not exactly what happened to Turkey. But again, um, what a potential operation that happens either later this year or in early 2023, it could certainly be different from 
ones in the past, naturally unpredictable. I, I just wanted to ask, and I'm not trying to keep you over time, but um, do, do you have any thoughts on what's going on with Iran since you mentioned it? Um, do, 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 I mean, we heard the other day that the morality police was abolished, but I, I think that has been misreported uh, potentially. Uh, wh- where do you see the situation headed in Iran? Well, um, these protests that have been going on since mid-September are not coming to an end. The government is not successful in terms of um, quelling the unrest. This upheaval continues. Uh, That being said, I'm not so sure there's any necessarily a sign that the government is on the verge of collapse. It seems the security forces remain mostly intact. Um, So I think Obviously, the Islamic Republic is now facing its gravest uh, legitimacy crisis since it came to power in 1979. But I'm personally not so convinced that the regime is on the brink of collapse. It seems that this is the assessment of a number of Israeli and U.S. officials. There was an article that came out one or two days ago making that point. Um, But, you know, Iran is becoming increasingly isolated from the West. We're seeing a number of European countries now putting new sanctions on Iran because of human rights abuses. The domestic situation and the very harsh crackdown uh, have been the latest developments to really dim the prospects for a revival of the JCPOA. This means that we can expect Western, really U.S. sanctions, U.S.-led sanctions to remain in place, which will continue to cripple Iran's economy. Uh, From a broader regional standpoint, I think something we need to all be concerned about are ways in which the uh, unrest, the violent unrest in Iran has potential to uh, have destabilizing impacts on other countries in the region the Iranian government is clearly trying to divide the opposition and really rally Iranians behind the state. One of their tactics for doing this is pointing the finger at the Saudis, the Americans, the Israelis, at certain Kurdish groups in Iraq. And we've seen uh, since the upheaval began in mid-September, we've seen the Iranians carrying out missile and drone strikes against certain targets in northern Iraq. Uh, it makes for a very, very messy situation. And unfortunately, I don't think that the uh, turmoil in Iran is on the verge of ending anytime soon. And as long as this unrest continues, there are certainly many risks uh, to other countries in the region, and it will be um, important to really keep an eye on how Iraq is going to be impacted by the situation in Iran as we move into 2023. Well, thank you again, Giorgio Caferio, for coming on Parallax News. Could you let my listeners know how they can keep up with your work and um, maybe uh, what they can find at Gulf Sea Analytics? I know you have a membership program there. so mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, well, I'm active on Twitter. My handle is my full name, spelled G-I-O-R-G-I-O-C-A-F-I-E-R-O. My company, Gulf State Analytics, has a website, gulfstateanalytics.com. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Gulf State Analyt. 
So G-U-L-F-S-T-A-T-E-A-N-A-L-Y-T. And also the pinned tweet on that page is a monthly report that we provide for our subscribers called the GSA Brief that uh, provides coverage and analysis of developments in the six GCC states, Iran and Iraq. It would be an honor to have some of your listeners uh, become subscribers to the GSA Brief. And uh, it would be wonderful to uh, engage with any and all of your followers on Twitter down the line. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you found my conversation with Giorgio Caffiero of Gulf State Analytics to be enlightening. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. It's nothing else. If we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.